Well, turfs and trannies, this is Nina Paley, and you're listening to Heterodorks. I'm your co-host, Corinna Cohn. This might be a very short episode because there was no internet bullshit this week. <laughs> None at all. None at all. <laughs> oh, boy. See, the problem when, if we talk about trashing, is that you know, who trashes the trashers, right? To talk about trashing is, in fact, trashing, is it not? It is not if we avoid pointing out individuals, which I heartily recommend that we can talk about this topic and not focus on any individual. Okay. Well, people are being mean on the internet. People on the internet are singling out other people in fact, they're doing the classic singling out a more successful person and taking her down or trying to take her down. But in this case, I think the more successful person really doesn't give a shit and has no fucks to give and probably doesn't even notice. But still, it's discouraging to see that this behavior happens over and over again. It's inevitable in some ways, isn't it? Yes, it's totally inevitable. But, you know, um, it's like, you can be a complete nobody. Wow, my cats are just playing with each other in a very adorable way. You can be a complete nobody online, and your voice is, on some platforms, just as loud as anybody else's voice. So you can be an anonymous nobody and start ranting about how horrible somebody who is not actually anonymous is. And then you can get a little growing herd of other anonymous nobodies and they'll all sort of join in. And yeah, it's it's human nature. It is. So if we actually call them out by name, then we're just being human. <laughs> but as you said, you had a brilliant insight this week, which is that bad things are bad. Yes. I only just realized this. Good things are good, but bad things are bad. Yeah, so I think that would be bad. It may be human nature, <laughs> but it's bad human nature. And if we're able to resist it, we should. Now, if we're sufficiently traumatized, miserable, self-pitying, or like in a hole of, oh, I don't know, despair, where we can do nothing except lash out at other people... Then we should do that, but we're doing better than that right now. We don't have to do that. <laughs> oh, but wait. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not a coincidence that we're using the word trashing. That is a word that both you and I were scratching our heads like crazy this morning saying, what was that word that would let us try to find that essay from the 1970s that sums up what is happening perfectly. And the essay was written by Joe Freeman, and it's called Trashing the Dark Side of Sisterhood. And it recounts a feminist's experience in a feminist community in Chicago where she was essentially unpersoned and driven out. I recommend reading it. It will be in the show notes. Yeah, I mean, this, this of course, is what 
being canceled is, right? It's just a whole bunch of people turning on you. I've had this experience in my town. I had to acknowledge that some of what was happening in my town when I was canceled in my town was there were a whole bunch of bitter, frustrated wannabe artists who were less successful than me. And if you're more successful, you become a target to frustrated people like that. Who feel justified. I don't think any of them listen to us because we're impure. But if they were, I think they would hear us and say, okay, but in my case, it's different because so-and-so really did do something that deserves criticism. And all I'm doing is holding them accountable. I'm not trashing them. I'm not slandering them. I am just holding them accountable. Yes, that is the language of the counselor. What I've noticed is that everybody is human. I have noticed that, well, I'm human. And in our current kerfuffle, the person being trashed is also very human, very fallibly human. And I do criticize people. I tend to step back when there's a whole bunch of other people criticizing them at the same time <laughs> or like exaggerating things that are wrong with them. She plays with her hair, which absolutely means that she's not really a feminist because she's portraying the tropes that men, the male gaze demands from the woman. She, she no longer has her own person and therefore she must perform femininity in order to get male approval. <sighs> it's much more important to perform radical feminism in order to get radical feminist <laughs> right. approval. Whatever the hell performing radical feminism is, it's like you and I had a text conversation where I said that I perform gender and you were surprised. I also said that you perform gender. We both perform gender. Oh my gosh. Welcome like to it. the postmodern hour with Nina and Corinna. <laughs> hey, gender is performative, right? There's stereotypes. We have some agency, but a lot of, I mean, my, my performance is extremely toned down comparatively compared to most American women. Mine is toned down. But I certainly know some women who perform far less than me and perhaps don't even perform. Like if it's possible not to perform at all, I think I I know a woman or two who's like that. I think in these cases, I think there's some neuro non-normativity going on, which I think is the only way you can completely evade the internalization of some of these behaviors. But I notice in myself vocal things that I do, ways that I move my head around, ways that I, as Lear Keith would say, well, Lear Keith says that femininity is ritualized submission. And there are ways that I perform submission which I think I learned as a legitimate strategy as someone of my sex, right? Like you're the, you know, the weaker human, you're going to show your belly more. 
so that you don't get in a tussle with the more aggressive ones. What, you're laughing. I'm not laughing. I'm. <laughs> you're smirking. I'm contemplating. That's not ladylike, Corinna. <laughs> That's an unladylike smirk. <laughs> I've earned it. <laughs> it is earned. No, it's perfectly ladylike. I don't oh, actually know how worse. I don't know how masculine or feminine smirks are. I did grow up with a father that told me frequently how unladylike I was. Like this was something I was supposed to actually give a shit about. You had training. Well, he wasn't training me. He was just cuz cuz whatever I internalized, it was it was not something that I did consciously. My dad was trying to impose behaviors on me consciously and consciously I was resisting all of this. Consciously I did not want to be female. I wanted to be a boy. I had, you know, gender dysphoria, but we didn't have a name for it growing up. And intellectually, I thought one way about myself which was not super feminine so when i notice that i'm doing these certain behaviors a lot of it actually involves these the eyes i really noticed it when i had lunch with this non-binary woman who was like super aggressively non-binary and all her work is about being non-binary and she wrote blog posts and notices saying that the only grammatically correct pronouns for her were they and them and she had a big they and them pin. And she was so femme. She was so feminine. And the things that she did with her facial expressions and her hands and her eyes sort of, I can't really explain it. It's like. Right. But I get it. <laughs> I don't think she had thought things through <laughs> with the, with the non-binary thing, but it, it was a lesson for me in the difference between how we want to be and how we are and how what how much we may have internalized. Even though I pitied her, I also knew that, you know, I recognize these things because I do some of them to a much lesser extent than she does, but I do some of them and it's frustrating. Oh, another thing that I do is like, like I, I mean, not as much now, but I do this sort of excessive laughing, which started very young. I'm holding it in, but that made me laugh. <laughs> See, you can hold it in. Somehow you have that ability. So were you socialized trans? I was. That's why I turned out to be a tranny. No, I, I don't know what I was socialized. I obviously had a lot of socialization as a male, but being the bottom of the totem pole of the male totem totem pole, they, uh, see, I say they instead of we, they did not want me part of the totem pole at all. So I don't think that there's just this blanket male social socialization and blanket female socialization. I think there's a lot more nuance than that. Yeah, but, but there are still, I don't know, maybe there is blanket female socialization. There are things that I have in common with so many women, maybe all women. I don't know. With most women. I mean, these things, my parents theoretically knew better, but it was like, I don't know. I came out a lot cleaner than my brother. Like, for some reason, 
I know how to keep my house clean better than most male people. Well, you were over at my house recently, Nina, so you know I'm (laughs) non-binary. You are domestically non-binary. That's right. (laughs) I can vacuum, but I cannot dust. (laughs) Ah, right. What were we talking? We were talking about trashing. How did we get on this? Oh, right. Performing radical feminism. No matter what the scapegoat does, they're they're going to get it for something. Right. I noticed that one of the criticisms of... So there was a woman and a man being trashed. We're being so cagey. It's like we can't even say their names. You can. The man being... Well, let's see how long we can go without it. The man being trashed was criticized for having cats. Which I think is his most redeeming quality. <laughs> Me too. It's like, if you're going to trash him, say like, well, even though he's a horrible person, at least he has cats. But no, it was like, he's so terrible, he even has cats. <laughs> That's desperation. When, when you're trying to drag somebody because they have a cat, you're desperate. Yeah, there was plenty to drag him about, too. There's plenty to dislike. But as I said, recently I have... Well, I've I've heard a lot of YouTube interviews and discussions lately, and in many cases, I have ended up thinking less of the people in these conversations than I did before, and paradoxically, also thinking more of them because their their humanity and their flaws to me are on display, right? Or like, I don't think they can, they themselves consider these things flaws. They're just things about them that it's like, oh, I didn't know that about them. Well, I don't like that. You know, this seems like a weakness and I thought they were awesome and they're not, you know, they make mistakes and they have blind spots. So I think less of them. But then I also think more of them because they're out there being themselves. You know, it turns out that with all of their failings and stuff, I still appreciate what they're doing. Right? Like, so maybe, you know, like, no, these none of these people are perfect, but I think they're all contributing something important. So in that way, I think more of them. It takes, I, like, at the risk of patting you and I on the back, it takes something to put yourself out there. You have to be willing to have people comment on what you're saying, and you have to even be willing to have people misrepresent you hiding behind a, an identity. Although, let, let me step at that back just a little bit. Some people are convinced that if they put their name to their words, that they will have to pay a price that they cannot afford, which is cowardice. You are a coward if you do that. But sometimes it's necessary to survive by that strategy of cowardice, coward. Sometimes you have to. That is sometimes the rational thing to do. You should not pretend that you would otherwise be courageous. You should just own the fact that you are taking a, a very safe strategy. You are, you are being very risk-averse. Even if you don't want to call yourself a coward, which I don't blame the cowards for doing so, even if you say, I'm not a coward, I'm, I'm risk-averse, I can't take the risk, I've got a family, I've got too much responsibility to, to own my words. 
even then, the people who actually put their names to things are the ones who are driving the conversation. How many essays are being published anywhere by anonymous authors? And to some extent, this is even true on the trans side. The trans people who are, are pushing the trans agenda are not doing so anonymously. They're also putting their names on it. So if you want to be a driving force in the conversation, you have to take the risk of attaching your name to it. You have to back up your words with an identity. Yeah. I also think about my friends who have various differences. And I manage to accept them. Like, I don't have any perfect friends, except for you, of course. Right. <laughs> but other and, than and, you. And, and likewise, <laughs> you are my only perfect friend. Um, I can also accept people in the, you know, my public intellectual pantheon, like the divine pantheons of yore. They're not everybody perfect. They all have what we might call failings. Feet of clay. Feet of clay or, you know, kryptonite vulnerabilities or something. I don't know. I think it's part of being a mature person to accept that everybody's not like you. I mean, the, the trashing thing, I guess, comes from this sort of infantile need to believe people are perfect and awesome, but infantile need to deify people. And I do it, you know, it's like until, until I learn otherwise, somebody makes something awesome and I just think, oh my God, a goddess, I want to marry her. And then of course it's disappointing to learn that they're human just like everybody else. But the more you live, the more you realize this is inevitable and that everybody in the entire world is human. They are. I didn't grow up reading the Harry Potter books. I grew up reading a different set of books that I thought were really influential and Harry Potter-ish for me. And that author ended up trashing J.K. Rowling as a transphobe. And I still like her books. All right. Who was the author? Who was she? I'll see, kill her. See, we're trying not to <laughs> trash people. <laughs> Let me get my hands on her. It kind of kills something in you when somebody that, I don't know, I think when you're a child, you look at adults differently, you see them as more like role models, and maybe you don't lose that completely when you become an adult. But it's sad when you see somebody that you sort of idolized as a kid, just turn out to have the same sort of failings as every other adult human being, like their own unique ones. It's not the same ones. That, w that would be interesting. But, you know, every everybody has their own unique, sharp edges to them. Yeah, I guess that's why J.K. Rowling was trashed so harshly, because she was basically trashed by children. The people that had an attachment to her formed that when they were children. And in their relationship to her, they still are children. Yes, that makes perfect sense. I wonder how much that feeds into the process of, like, I have to tear down my idol because I have grown. My ideals are different from what I thought my idols ideals were. And therefore, instead of being able to 
figure out that dissonance, I have to destroy them in order to cancel out that dissonance. Yes. So you'll stay a child forever and you'll just keep finding more idols. I like how you used the word idol and ideal together. <laughs> Not confusing. Hmm. I kind of also want to talk about this book by Eleanor Burkett, The Baby Moon, which was released in 2002. Yes, we spoke about that briefly this week. Yeah, I was hoping, and maybe I can still find a child-free, other than me, a child-free radical feminist to talk about this stuff with, because there is a potential rift. Nobody's picking at it, thank goodness. There's a, a possible division of radical feminists between child-free women and mothers. There are certainly some radical feminists who elevate motherhood, and then there are some child-free radical feminists like me who do not, but who don't uh, piss on the women that are elevating motherhood, because why would we do that? For your own purposes. <laughs> Yes. Well, I have not I have not yet seen a window of opportunity where I could benefit from this. So I haven't done it yet. But let me tell you, when I see a way to move up, oh boy. You just have to trash mothers as a class. You can't just pick out one or two individual mothers. <laughs> right. So we had a conversation about this that I'm hoping to semi recreate. What were the, I wrote some notes. On, on the way back to Illinois? Yes. And, and just for those of you who are not keeping track of every aspect of our lives, I rode my bike 130 miles to Indianapolis from Urbana, Illinois on Monday. And then I rode it 20 miles further into Indianapolis where I ate some delicious food and then went to Corinna's and put my bike in Corinna's car and Corinna drove me and my bike home. Where we had more delicious food. We had more delicious food. We also had a conversation about uh, being sex traders and... Class solidarity. And class solidarity and species traders. Nina is a species trader. I am not. I am with you humans. So when we need to put somebody up against the wall who is anti-human, Nina, I'm sorry. Okay. Yeah, I like that to say, I am with you humans. <laughs> it sounds authentic. Uh-huh. You're a, a human ally. An ally I am a human to ally. humans. <laughs> I empathize so strongly with humans. They have to deal with so much, Nina. It's, it's, really, it's really sad. Yeah. Whereas I do not empathize with humans. Right. Because they're terrible. Terrible for the planet and terrible to each other. Indeed. And I know this because I am one. They invented a whole technology that they could use so that they could trash each other from the comfort of their own homes. They don't even have to do it in person. <laughs> What's awful is that they're trying to colonize space. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> uh, right. So, right. We were talking about solidarity with women. And I said that, yes, I, I have solidarity with women, all women, because I am a woman. I have class solidarity as part of the female sex class. However, 
I don't have solidarity with subclasses of women or all subclasses of women. I certainly have solidarity with child-free women, but I'm not in the class of mothers. That's a subclass. I am not in that class. They are also a subclass of human. Mothers are. That's true. Women are. Women are. Well, yes. Well, see, that's a... All right. I have human solidarity, even though I'm a human trader. But you know what? I'm a species trader, but I'm not a class trader. I'm glad that you can sleep at night with that sort of logic. I sleep, I sleep very poorly, actually. Oh, well, <laughs> it's amazing that you can sleep at all. <laughs> but you're an antinatalist. Therefore, it would make sense that your solidarity is with child-free women and not with mothers. Yes. Although I have, I mean, I, mothers are also women, so I have class solidarity with them as women. And my take was that women who are fertile, and especially women who are mothers, are the most important members of the female class because they are carrying on the most important work of the human species, which is continuing it. Yes, reproductions. Right. So reproduction. there, that's where my species trader thing kicks in because uh, all of this biological reproduction is spelling the end, not just of us. Well, I mean, who knows if it'll end us or not, but it's certainly creating an enormous amount of suffering and it has led to the end of countless other species and habitats. Let me bring up my class trader tendencies then. Why don't we just make it so that men aren't able to reproduce? See, I would totally be down with that. And and this is a weird thing that has happened. Uh, I've noticed strange things among some radical feminists. This is what happens when you read Spinster. There was a man on Spinster who is... <gasps> yes, there are men on Spinster uh women are welcome to block them they know that but uh there's still a few men on spinster and this one is an antinatalist and he identifies as an antinatalist identified himself publicly as an antinatalist and a woman said how dare you call yourself an antinatalist you're a man and perfectly sensible did he did he remove his testes because that's commitment <laughs> Um, you know, you can make that commitment without even actually removing your testes. <laughs> That's half commitment. Half commitment. It, you know, in terms of the non-reproduction, it's full commitment. All you have to do is snip the the tubes. There is a vast deference <laughs> between half commitment and full commitment, Nina. <laughs> A vast difference, indeed. <laughs> you just won the podcast. Well done. <laughs> anyway, uh, I do believe he has made that particular commitment. So certainly males, they can be child-free. They can be antinatalist. Uh, and they can take themselves right out of the gene pool. That is something men can do. But the 
the women were arguing that a male antinatalist is just getting all up in women's business because by saying they're an antinatalist, they're trying to control women's fertility. And this fellow is not. He, I believe, wants men to control men's fertility, which is left out of the discussion of fertility quite a lot. And uh, yeah, I, I, of course, really appreciate male antinatalists and certainly child-free men and certainly any men that take charge of their own fertility, namely sterilizing themselves. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it's like every pregnancy that I'm aware of has started with some sperm as well as an egg. And of course, all of, you know, the woman does all the work, but this process is instigated by men. And, and sometimes even without consent. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Men have forcibly impregnated women, which is freaking appalling. So uh, the, the existence of human reproduction is a shared responsibility. Woman's choice, shared responsibility. But men have some choice, too. If men don't want to reproduce, they can do something about that. And I'm absolutely in favor of men doing that. And most men don't do it because, because the reality of reproduction is not as immediate for them. They don't have to think about actually carrying a baby and giving birth to it, whereas most fertile women do, whether they want to have children or not. One of the things that men could do in order to avoid producing more humans, if they really are concerned about the health of the environment and the health of the world, is to have more relationships with trans women. <laughs> well, you know, one thing leads to another, and next thing you know, you've hired a sur surrogate in the Ukraine. Right. That is the downside. Um, notice how I say surrogate. That's so dehumanizing, isn't it? That's just appalling. I don't know. I haven't come down on a real strong decision on, on how I feel about surrogate pregnancies. I'm afraid I have. I've been, I have been influenced by the, the Radfem position, which is strongly anti-prostitution and strongly, well, sur surrogacy is another form of prostitution for the most part. It's the selling of a female body. And it's one of those things where people say like, oh, but you could choose it. You know, you, they imagine the best case scenario, right? Like the, the affluent prostitute who thinks it's fun and does it by choice and can leave whenever she wants. And certainly you could have that theoretically with surrogacy, the, the woman who just you know, wants to really help another couple have a baby and she really enjoys being pregnant. She doesn't want to raise more of her own kids. Um, so yes, theoretically, or probably even in real life, some, some small number of women are actually like this and they're going to have a much louder voice than all the women who are basically desperate and trafficked. So we're going to get a skewed perspective because of that. So yeah, my thoughts about surrogacy prior to listening to radical feminists 
was similar to prostitution, which is like, well, it's a choice. And yeah, you know, if someone wants to do that, they can do that. Freedom of choice. But the vast majority are really desperate and basically trafficked. I should learn more about it because that might change my mind. You are correct. In my imagination, it is people who, women who are middle class, who are being contracted by other people who are middle class to have a surrogate pregnancy and that there's some sort of financial recompense and that there are professionals involved to make sure that the woman who is the surrogate is healthy and will be able to have a full and healthy pregnancy. But that probably is a very naive view. Yeah, some really awful things happened during the pandemic. So so I understand. Like I read some articles about basically baby farms in poor countries and with the travel bans, the commissioning adopters could not get to the poor countries to pick up the product and they had no responsibility for it. So these, you know, suddenly there were like all of these babies that, that weren't even paid for, right? Like, it's like, it's like the product wasn't delivered and the babies actually exist and there was no one in particular to take care of them. So they made like a crop of orphans. Is this like Amazon that if you don't get your package the first time you order it, they'll send you another one? <laughs> I, I don't know how they all worked it out, but it, it was... <clears throat> On the other hand, I'm, I'm talking uh, hearsay at this point because I don't have the, the article to refer to. It would be monstrous, I think, that if you were to contract with a woman in a foreign country to be your surrogate, that if she completed the pregnancy and had the baby, that you would not still adopt it. Well, see, they want, they want a baby. They don't want a one-year-old or a two-year-old. That's monstrous. Yes. It's so narcissistic. I think this thing in the first place is narcissistic. How, how is it not narcissistic to go like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm not fertile. I can't have a baby, but it's so important that I produce one of, you know, of my genes or the genes of my choice. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what all life is supposed to do is to forward the set of genes that you were created with. That is the purpose of life. If you're not fertile, it's not the purpose of your life. If you are not fertile, then at least you have the responsibility of making sure that your, your genetic code as much as possible continues. So if you have nieces or nephews to try to ensure that they are able to forward their genetic material. What's that called? There's a word for what you're talking about. This Nationalism. This... <laughs> White nationalism. No, I don't know. It, it's, 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 all, it's all species. It's all... You know, everything from the bacteria that are crawling around in your your tear ducts all the way up to the, you know, the horse. Well. You ride around on, if you do, ride around <laughs> on a horse. What if you ride around on a mule? There's my point. 
did that mule come from a mule? No, it's just dead. <laughs> it is. It is a an evolutionary dead spot. You really hate mules. Mules are the official transportation of the anti-natalist Congress. <laughs> mules have the same spark of life, the same feelings, the same joie de vivre, and the same raison d'être as all other animals. But they lack the purpose. Purpose? Whose purpose? Maybe the mule's <laughs> purpose. I think our purpose is to eat and shit. On that account, I'm doing quite well. Exactly. <laughs> you could say that everyone's an individual and everyone is just fighting to reproduce themselves, competing to reproduce themselves. Survival of the fittest. You're competing with every other member of your own species in order to produce more of your special genetic material, which is super special. Or you can look at the species as a group where the group is trying to reproduce more of the group. And in order to do that, especially in complex societies like human societies, some members of that society will not biologically reproduce because that will benefit the society as a whole and make the society make more people more healthy and more fit. We're like the soldier ants. There you go. Right, right. Or bees. The soldier right? bees. Most bees don't reproduce. They work. Yay. <laughs> You're a little worker bee. <laughs> You're right. They are trying to, nevertheless, the point of them working is to propagate the species. Well, when you say the point, I mean... A circle has 360 points or more. It has infinite points. So you've you've located one point on a circle and called it the point. But there's a bunch of other points. The purpose. The purpose. The singular a cir- purpose. A circle, a circle has no purpose. <laughs> Neither does life. Life is just the exuberance of energy. We're just this planet that's really near a source of energy. A star. And all this life just comes up. I'm surprised at, at, that we don't have like this vast spiritual following of just hanging on our words to see how 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 much depth and meaning we provide. <laughs> you and I, we are just worker bees and star farts. Anyway, I don't I don't really know. We we sort of get to decide what our purpose is. Humans do psychologically most of us seem to psychologically need a purpose. We seem to need meaning as a way to be mentally healthy and order our lives. Yes. Many people, myself included, have these moments where we realize, "Oh my god, like there is no meaning. There is no purpose." But I want to continue living and I want to order my life. So it's actually up to me to to decide on a purpose in order to in order to mentally function. For me that purpose is absolutely not biological reproduction. For me, my purpose, the thing that drives me every morning is that I get to have a cup of coffee 
And the thing that drives me every afternoon is that I'll have a piece of dark chocolate. That's my purpose. That's and then v- you know what? What? Then I pi- then I piss and then I shit. <laughs> That's right. Eat and shit. I am a complete organism. That's really all you have to do. So what was my point about this? I've forgotten already. It's like a circle, Nina. Maybe you had an infinite number of points. There's an inf- exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to find where I was on the circle. It'll meet it'll meet its end though. Just like uh political differences. That's right. Like the worm eating its tail. That's not a good analogy for anything that we've seen this week. <laughs> it's a snake eating its tail. You say snake, I say worm. It's the Ouroboros. So, Turfs and Trannies, thank you for listening to us. We will talk at you next week. And I've got a whole list of horrible things to say about each and every one of you. Bye. <laughs>